The Paul Leslie Hour, helping people tell their stories. And now, your host, Paul Leslie. Hey, it's me. Thank you, as always, for joining us here on the Paul Leslie Hour. And usually we get right into the show, but I just wanted to take a moment to talk to you all. The show is now in its 16th year. Thank you all for being here. A number of you have said that you would like to support the show. Well, now you can. If you've ever gotten enjoyment, inspiration, or information, consider becoming a patron. Just go to patreon.com slash the Paul Leslie Hour. This interview is being recorded in Brookhaven. Brookhaven, Georgia, close to Atlanta, was at one time Atlanta, and I'm sitting in the home of Glenn Phillips. He's a guitarist, composer, recording artist, one of the founding members of the Hampton Grease Band. Lowell George of Little Feet called him the most amazing guitarist I have ever seen. He has a new release. It's entitled Echoes. The Hampton Grease Band, My Life, My Music, and How I Stopped Having Panic Attacks. It is a book, DVD, and CD. Right. The CD is uh, a new album. Right. And the DVD is a uh, live show from uh, the first album I did on my own was called Lost at Sea in 1975. I actually recorded it here in Brookhaven in my little duplex. And uh, it was a... that was uh, that record led to Richard Branson flying over from England and signing me to Virgin Records, visiting my home in Brookhaven, and and uh, on my 40th anniversary, another label in England re-released it, and we did a album release show, and I had a reunion of the band that recorded that record 40 years after the fact, and that was filmed and recorded, and that's what the DVD is, and both that that show and the uh, new album are very much connected to and and relate to the story in the memoir, which is why I put them all together. All right. This must have been a very fascinating journey to go back and write your memoirs. Yes, it was. It, uh, it started in 1990. Uh, I had a double C a record label wanted to put out a double CD compilation of all my earlier records. So I wrote a history of the band. And then that led me to write a history of the Hampton Grease band to see if we could get Columbia Records, which is now Sony Music, interested in re-releasing that album, which they did. So I wrote the history of both those bands for those two releases. And in the process, I started writing more and more. And this was also a a process of there were things in my life that I wanted to understand, connect the dots to, to see how certain things happened in my life, uh, why they happened, what the repercussions were. And writing this story became very much a personal journey for me of connecting the dots and understanding things. Uh, you know, when I made Lost at Sea in 75, it was very much a reaction to my father's suicide. Uh, it was my way of dealing with that. And then 40 years later, we did the reunion show for that. And in the course of that 40 years, I started having panic attacks whenever I would go to any kind of medical procedure, mm. dentist, doctor, anything. And it started off with simple things like... Uh, getting a blood sample and looking down and seeing the blood and fainting. But it got worse and worse the older I got. And uh, after about 40 years, I had a really uh, terrible one where I was in just getting an eye exam. And they were telling me about an eye operation I'd have to have. And I, I passed out. My wife, Katie, was there. She said it looked like I was having seizures. They called the EMTs. They came in. They told her I was having a heart attack and that I was dying. And when I came to, I was covered in sweat, and I could hear her crying like I'd never heard her cry in the 30 years we'd been together. She thought I was dying. And I had this thought go through my head, this can never happen again. I can never, ever do this to her again, which made me become fixated and devoted to understanding 
what these panic attacks were about, how they started, and how to stop them. And I spent a year and a half working on that um, through reading and coming to some conclusions on my own and, and figuring some things out. And the night before I had to have, 24 hours before I had to have that operation is when that Lost at Sea reunion show was. And it was when my eye, it was an eye operation. And it was when it was at its very worst and I could hardly see, but I no longer had any anxiety. And I, and I was past it. And I was able to go in and get the operation with no anxiety. I finally put together over the course of writing this book and the course of this time of having these experiences, realizing that these uh, panic attacks were never about doctors hmm. and that they all started after my father killed himself. Hmm. And what I learned is that if you grow up in an anxiety-prone environment and if you uh, have certain genes, you are very likely to have panic attacks when you get older. And what I realized is, is what I was doing, and I think lots of people do this without knowing you're doing it, you're projecting your anxiety onto something else, and it's fairly random. So it's very deceptive. I kept thinking, how did this happen? Did I have some terrible experience with a doctor? But I realized this isn't about doctors. This just happened to fall in. It was about my father. It was about guilt, about not being able to save my parents from their alcoholism, or save my father from the suicide. He visited me hours before he did it. So this guilt and this anxiety that you go through when you're younger is kind of the fuel that drives the engine of anxiety. And I think it was why my father killed himself. I later learned uh, that his mother killed herself the same way, that his sister killed herself the same way. And so you begin to put the pieces together. And writing this book was an invaluable way for me to look at my life as a whole in a number of ways and see these things mm. and how they connected. And you start seeing, it's like veils lifting in front of you. And it's, it's like uh, it's learning to understand the magic trick trick of anxiety. And I think of anxiety like a magic trick because you know when a magician does sleight of hand mm -hmm. and they're doing something with their right hand, but they get you to look at their left hand, that's how I think of anxiety now. And that's why it so, was so confusing for me and so many other people because you keep trying to figure out how did this happen with the left hand, but it's the right hand that's doing it. And once I figured out what was going on, I started realizing that this was, I started studying about what happens when you have panic attacks and you're flooded with chemicals. And it's a cocktail of chemicals, but one of the main ones and I'll, is adrenaline. Mm. And I started wondering if this has gone on all my life. And what I kept reading is the longer this happens, the more it's going to happen. And the more it happens, the more intense it gets. I started realizing what they're describing is a habit, mm. is a bad habit, is an addiction. Is it possible that I'm addicted to adrenaline? I started reading about adrenaline, and adrenaline can be addictive. So I started working on controlling adrenaline. Every day when I would uh, just go through the day, if I'd encounter an, uh, uh, an aggressive driver, a rude person, i just tell myself, this is not a problem. This is an opportunity to learn how to not have another panic attack. And day by day as I did that, I got better and better at recognizing when I would have this reaction. And if you can recognize when the adrenaline starts, right when it starts, you can control it. If you don't get it when it starts and the dam busts, hmm. you're in for an ugly ride. And so I learned how to do that over time and I don't have panic attacks anymore, and it's. It, it, I look at it as a gift that this happened to me. Wow. That's really something. Well, it, it, it was something. <laughs> so that's how all the book and uh, and all these stories and, you know, and, and the, the music and the, and the DVD all came together as one thing. Talking about the music for a moment. Can you tell us about some of the artists and bands when you were growing up that uh -huh. made the biggest influence on you? Well, uh, you know, 
I grew up in the 60s, so obviously that music had a tremendous impact on me. And what was great about that era was that there was a, the, the boundaries between different forms of music didn't exist as much as they do now. In other words, uh, concerts would have acts from wide, widely diverse acts, jazz acts, a, a, a blues act, a, a psychedelic band. Just, and so we were all part of that. So we would just listen to everything that was around us. So I, I was growing up in Atlanta, and I would go hear every kind of music. I would... They were, uh, the, this was back in the days of segregation, obviously. And so there were these shows at the municipal auditorium that used to take place. One was a, was a rhythm and blues package shows. They'd come in. And I'd go down there, and those would be for largely African-American audiences with African-American acts. And I'd hear people like B.B. King uh, and rhythm and blues acts. There were country and western package shows, and I go down to see those. And then uh, psychedelic bands or bands started coming up. And, and what was interesting is uh, one of the biggest, earliest shows at this municipal auditorium in the wake of these sort of segregated shows was Jimmy, was Jimi Hendrix playing there. And so prior to that, all these rhythm and blues shows were African-American audiences. The country and western shows, these rock shows would all be white audiences. And now here was a show of a mostly white audience, and the headliner was an African-American. And so things started changing, and music started opening up. And a lot of the blues boom that happened in the late 60s was about this. It was about white kids discovering African-American music in this culture that we had been influenced by without even knowing it. But now we, now we knew it, and we saw who these artists were. So I was very influenced by that music. One of the first bands, the Paul Butterfield Blues Band, came out in the 60s with Mike Bloomfield on guitar. And Mike Bloomfield at the time was the most influential guitarist more of that generation, more than anybody. People don't know his name as much now. Now, you, you don't know his name like you know Hendrix or Eric Clapton, but at the time, he was the most influential guy. Well, they opened up the door for a generation of white kids. Where is this music coming from? These songs they're doing, where are they from? So we just started exploring all of this music. Uh, we would drive to New York to hear artists, to hear mm. jazz artists, Charles Mingus, Tony Williams, Pharoah Sanders, you know, we just, because that was the only, that was the only way we could hear this stuff. And then we'd come back down south and, and we'd be influenced by bands that were around us. There was a vibrant, very much alive music scene in Atlanta. It's not as well documented as New York or California, not because there wasn't an equal amount of talent, but because there, that's where the record business existed at that point. Right. It, in Atlanta, what you had, you had Bill Lowry put, putting out uh, pop records that, uh, that were, I'm not trying to be derogatory at all, they're great pop music, but as far as cutting, this sort of cutting edge music, there was no label structure, record label structure for anything like that to happen. So a lot of this music was going unnoticed that happened in Atlanta. It was incredible great music. And we started the Hampton Grease Band in this environment. We had a lot of trouble finding places to play. Uh, and that led to me going down to Piedmont Park. There was a, there's a pavilion down there. And I had noticed there was an outlet. And I just thought, I wonder if this outlet is a live outlet. And so I took a clock radio down there and plugged it in. And the clock started running and music started coming out of it. And I just started thinking, this is a time and place. So I talked to the band about it. We just drove down to Piedmont Park. This was 68. Plugged our instruments into the outlet, set up on the grass and started playing. And people started gathering around us. And we just started doing it every week. And by the next summer, we were playing there with the Allman Brothers and the Grateful Dead. And it just got bigger and bigger, and that evolved into these the pop festivals that ended up happening. We played we played at the pop festival. We were probably the most uncommercial band in Atlanta 
But what was really bizarre, and there were great, great bands in Atlanta, many, many of whom deserve record deals more than us and should have gotten them. And had they been on the West Coast or New York, they would have gotten them. But we played at the Pop Festival and got a, a, a really strong response. And there were executives from Columbia Records there. And they, our music was very esoteric. And it was drawn from all these influences that I'm talking about. Um, very not marketable music by any stretch of the imagination, but they thought they saw the reaction of the audience and they thought, well, I guess we ought to sign these guys because everybody likes them. And we ended up getting a record deal on Columbia. We recorded an album. They got the album. Our songs were like 20 minutes long. <laughs> they were incredibly complex, just to a ridiculous point. The lyrics range from being completely abstract uh, language to like a song that I had written where we didn't have any lyrics and I opened up an encyclopedia and said, just sing this. And I opened up to a random page and just started reading about Halifax, Nova Scotia and making the lines rhyme. That was the lyrics for a 20-minute song. <laughs> they got the first record and they said, nobody's going to play this. And they at the time... They had started putting out double albums. Chicago had put out a double album that was very successful. And a guy said, well, look, let's just, let's just make it a double record. They've got to have something more commercial than this. And so we recorded another album that was even more esoteric. <laughs> and they released it and since gone on to become a collector's item and, a, and an oddity of the time. So what are your memories for meeting Colonel Bruce Hampton? Well, Bruce and I went to high school together. We were, uh, Bruce was a little older than me, about three and a half years older. He was close friends with my brother, Charlie, who was the original bass player in the Grease Band. And Bruce was a very funny, comical, uh, I think of Bruce then and even when I was in the band with him as a performance artist just inherently, naturally, without even thinking about it. He was always performing. He was performing in the, in the, in the hallways of the school. It, this it just came naturally to him. He was also a very uh, blustery, you know, exaggerated, sort of like uh, making up stories, fabricating things all the time. This, is, this was just his nature. And, and one of our first encounters was he and Charlie were downstairs watching a professional wrestling match. And I came downstairs and I was on the wrestling team and I was a good wrestler. And I said, this is so fake. And Bruce goes, this isn't fake. I said, no, this is totally fake. And, he, and we get into this thing about it. And he, he, uh, he challenged me to a wrestling match. He said, I could, I could beat you in a wrestling match. And he was a bigger guy than me and older. So I just went, okay, let's go out in the backyard and wrestle. So, I pinned him in 30 seconds, but anybody in the wrestling team can beat anybody who's not on the wrestling team. I don't want to make it sound like I'm Superman. But <laughs> from that, we formed an odd sort of friendship in that I think a part of the chemistry, the, the band was centered around myself, Bruce, and Harold. We were the founding members. And I think the fact that Bruce had somebody that sort of called him on these things when he was doing this was part of the chemistry of the band. And I've seen other bands that have that sort of chemistry. So we were very close. It was like family. It was like we were brothers. But it was also like brothers who, I guess, kept each other in check and were very different personalities. Harold and I were obsessed with music and writing these complex songs. Bruce was did not think about music much he was it, it was the music was a platform for him to perform and I and in in a way that that's that's how he expressed himself and I look back at it this incredibly complex music Harold and I were writing it was Bruce who made it connect with people through this performance and through the way he presented things and the fact that he was so disconnected from the music is what made the chemistry of the band so completely unique. You've got the most, uh, our drummer Jerry Fields described it as music versus anti-music. And it just created this 
combustible, explosive thing. Our performances were explosive. The music was explosive. And it was a, it was an incredible, unique chemistry that we all had together. And when I think back about the band, and especially the, the group of us that recorded Music to Eat that was also included Mike Holbrook on bass and Jerry Fields on drums. The chemistry that we all shared was like we were all doing exactly what we wanted to do with exactly the people we wanted to be doing it with. And that was what was so powerful about it. You know, when you, when you leave home, when you're a teenager, and uh, I know I came from what I would call a dysfunctional environment. I don't want to make it sound terrible. I love my parents and they were great people, but there was alcoholism in the home and I wanted to leave and everybody wanted to leave at that age. You just do naturally. But when you leave, you're suddenly on your own. Nobody's got your back anymore. You're not part of this family and you create a new family. And that new family you create for musicians is that first band you join. And, and it's a very powerful experience and it's a bond that lasts a lifetime. Wow. When you think about all the years of the Hampton Grease Band, is there a favorite memory? that you have? Well, there's so many. But I do remember uh, a show that uh, comes to mind. We were playing at our favorite club. It was called the Twelfth Gate. And and like I said, it was just, the band was just, it was just like anything goes. Anybody, we can just do whatever we want. We've all got each other's back. So uh, it was after we'd gotten the record deal and our manager had brought a a booking agent down to hear the band that night. And, but this is the sort of thing that would not have any influence or effect on us. We were just, we didn't care about any of this stuff. To give you an example of our attitude, our album, we put the album cover together. Harold did the art and we all uh, discussed what we put in it. And instead of liner notes, what we put in the record was the worst review we had ever received ever. <laughs> That's what we use for the liner notes, a guy who hated the band. So we were playing at this show, and our manager's out there bringing this guy down from New York. I want you to see these guys. they got a record deal. I want you to book them. And we're playing, and Jerry, in the middle of the show, stands up at his drums and just freezes. He just stands up and just freezes, motionless, does not move, does not say anything and didn't play again for the rest of the set. He stood there motionless for like 20, 25 minutes. The band keeps playing. Bruce just starts going nuts, because if there's something um, crazy going on, this is what Bruce thrived on. So Bruce, it was a small club, so like, I'm trying, a corner. He gets in this corner of, of the club where the stage is, and he puts himself up and he pushes himself up with his legs and there's beams up there. So he pushes himself up to the corner of the ceiling and is just screaming into the microphone. And Harold and I are going crazy on the guitar and Jerry's frozen motionless. And that's how we played the rest of the set. And then at the end of the set, the booking agent that flew down from New York tells our manager, well, I don't know what they sound like, but I don't guess it really matters. And that, to me, summed up the band. <laughs> <laughs> so those kind of moments, I just have incredibly fond memories of because of this combustible feeling of all of us being connected. And, and we were very lucky because when, when we played the 12th Gate, we were an environment of people that were... Uh, like extended family. They supported us. We would be doing this stuff and these people were there supporting it. It didn't matter where it went. These shows at Piedmont Park where these crowds would gather around us. It wasn't, um, they weren't shows you were being, you were part of a community. And I, I felt incredibly lucky to have that experience and to, to come out of leaving home and to have that in the band and with our audience at the same time. Hmm. On the note of Piedmont Park, you know, we're here in a part of Atlanta that has just changed so much. Right. What do you think about Atlanta today? Well, 
I still live here. I still love living here, but there are repercussions from overbuilding. Uh, I, I, I mentioned I'd lived, we'd, I lived in Brookhaven for 50 years. I moved here in 69. I was 19 years old. My rent was $25. And it was, I lived in a little duplex, two room duplex. And, uh, and that was, like I said, once, when the grease man broke up and I made my first album, I just made it in that duplex. And that led to a record deal overseas and it led to all these things. But what's happened is massive overbuilding to increase tax revenue. And there are repercussions to that. And I'll just give you one example. That house that I lived in for 30 years was straight through there, about the direction I'm pointing, about a mile, mile and a half. And the whole time my wife Katie and I were living there, we were going to county meetings and telling them, you have to deal with the water runoff issues. Mm. You, this, this, you, if you're going to build, if you're going to be building and tearing and clear cutting all this stuff, and and building these big homes, there's um, there's more and more water coming down, and and this shit's going to hit the fan at some point. So after living there for thirty years, the whole neighborhood gets torn down. We move around. We move around the corner where we are now. We've been here for 20 years. But a few years after we move here, we realize uh, one night that we're downstream from what we were telling them about. This entire neighborhood was flooded. Oh, boy. 176 homes flooded in this neighborhood. We had five feet of water from exactly what we were telling them was going to be happening. And ironically, we moved right into the flight path of the water that we were telling them was going to be a problem. So I still love Atlanta. I still love living in Brookhaven. But I do think that the uh, if you're going to overbuild, you better overplan. And, uh, you know, this neighborhood would still be flooding if it wasn't for my wife and, uh, and, and many other people who were involved. But she spent 10 years on the phone every day dealing with FEMA and DeKalb County and eventually got uh, was, was instrumental along with other people who were involved in getting $12.5 million from FEMA put in to stop in the flooding from this neighborhood, rebuilding all the culverts, putting in a massive retention pond, and we haven't flooded again since. Hmm. But you, uh, you, the, the, the saying is an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure, and that's a, that saying is stuck around for a reason. I was reading about some of the experiences that you've had in terms of sharing the stage with people who are iconic. Right. Frank Zappa. Right. Comes to mind. Yes. What are your memories of that evening? Well, Frank was very supportive of the band. We had uh, met him. Now, the Harold, Bruce, and Charlie, my brother, were in one of these trips to New York to uh, to hear music, and they ran into um, Zap on the streets. And Harold said to him, Grease, you know, just out of the blue. And they started talking and became friends. And Frank brought them to the studio and recorded and used their, their voice and their talk on a record called, uh, I'm trying to remember which one it was. I can't remember if it was Uncle Mead or Hot Rats on, on one of one of Frank's records. I'm blanking out on which record. But so when uh, when ha when Harold and Bruce came back, that's when we started the Grease Band. It was originally called the Grease Band. We later added Bruce's name because we heard Joe Cocker was called the Grease Band. His group was. But so we kept in touch with Frank. And Dwayne Allman was a fan of the band, told Bill Graham at the Fillmore, you have to book these guys. And Zappa was playing there, and Zappa had mentioned us to, to Bill Graham. So Bill Graham put us on this show with Frank. And it was a very uh, momentous occasion. We became really close with him. Uh, he asked me for a guitar lesson. 
I, he, I was up in his dressing room. He wanted me to show him uh, my picking technique. And we were jamming together. And while I was jamming with him, John Lennon and Yoko Ono walk in. Hmm. And they were coming down to jam with him. So it was a very momentous uh, occasion, obviously. Although what's ironic about these things is we were just basically kids when this stuff was happening. So we didn't realize how special it was. I'm in this dressing room. In one in one day, I've got Frank asking me to show him things on guitar, John, meeting John Lennon and Yoko Ono. I was always a big comics book fan. And Steve Ditko was the creator of Spider-Man and Stan Lee. They, he was the artist. I had a Steve Ditko was like the James J.D. Salinger of, of comic books. He's incredibly reclusive. He doesn't do interviews. That same day, I found his number in the phone book and called up and had a half hour discussion with him. <laughs> this all happened in one day. But we didn't know that these were incredibly rare moments because they were just happening and we took them for granted. It's only as time passes that you look back and go, how did that happen? How did you, how did these, all these events, and that all happened in one day, and our lives were like that very much. But so when we were dropped from, from Columbia Records, we were signed to Frank's label, and we had this, uh, really good relationship with Frank, lots of phone conversations, lots of things back and forth. The band ended up breaking up before we did the second record, but our, Frank was incredibly supportive. We were incredibly lucky to have somebody like that in our corner and, and acting as a validating what we did, being, you know, somebody that supported what we did. He was somebody, obviously, that, that we grew up listening to before we even had a band. So those were incredible moments, and they become more incredible and more appreciative of them as time passes. Who would you say, if you could pick the person who has taught you the most about music? Well, you know, the people I played with always had the biggest effect on me. All the, everybody in the Grease band had a, that was the first band I was in, had a very powerful effect on me. And the person that probably the most was Harold Kelling, the other guitarist in the band. And Harold was a, a, a brilliant guitarist, a brilliant artist. He did the art, the cover for the Grease Band. And we, uh, it's interesting, we had such a strong connection, but we had a kind of telepathic connection, naturally, when we played guitar together. It was as if we became one guitarist with four hands. And I, 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 I've never had anything else like quite like that with anybody else, and it just happened completely spontaneously. So having this connection with him and he was when the band started, I'd only been playing guitar a year. So I was really a novice. And Harold had been playing. He was he was like five years older than me. He'd been, he was much more experienced, much more accomplished musician. So he was probably the guy that had the biggest influence. And this connection we had was a powerful influence. It was funny because he was uh, very much part of that era's culturally, the drug use, the pot smoking, the LSD, the mescaline. I came out of a, uh, coming out of an alcoholic environment. I've, I've never even had a beer. I've never smoked pot. I've never done any drugs. It's just, it was just a reaction to the environment I grew in. So we couldn't have been any more different as people. But when we played together, it was like we were just one thing. And that was very much the basis of the music for the Grease Band. So we had this connection, and that had a very powerful influence on me. What you were saying about the drugs and the alcohol, is that still true? Yes. Wow. Um, I, I'm not saying, I, I just, it's just, I think it's a reaction uh, to seeing what happened to my parents, who again were incredible people, but uh, I think I understood at a very young age that I was an alcoholic from seeing what happened with them. It was just an intuitive feeling. And I just knew, don't go down this road. Mm. And I have since learned that there is a long, long line of alcoholism going back in both sides of my family. And it was just something that I always intuitively felt. And uh, I do really feel like 
the greatest gift your parents have to give you are their mistakes if you learn from them. If you repeat them, it's not such a great gift, but if you learn from them. So I've had a very happy life, and I and I I attribute that to what I learned from my parents. And I feel like uh, my dad had a rough upbringing, alcoholic parents, suicides, the same thing, and he ended up becoming an alcoholic himself and suicide, killing himself. And with me, he was able to give this to me in a way that uh, – Pass it on as a lesson of what not to do. When I was a teenager and I started playing guitar, he was very opposed to me being a musician. I'd go out on school nights and it was this constant conflict. And I mentioned earlier that I, he came to visit me hours before he killed himself. Mm-hmm. And he came in the little duplex in Brookhaven and he looked around and I thought he was going to start criticizing me. It was just a tiny little two-room place. And he said... Don't ever give this up. You're doing exactly what you want to do. Don't ever change that. Always do what you want to do. He was trying to give me something. Before He knew he was going to kill himself and he was telling me this. And uh, he gave me something very powerful. So I think he, I, I, it was a gift. And that's, for me... I'm not telling other people they shouldn't drink or shouldn't do drugs, right. but for me, it would have. I feel fairly certain it would have been a, a, a very bad road for me personally to go down. Based on the things that you are discussing here and, and overcoming a, a, a something like your a parent taking their life, having panic attacks, I know there's someone listening who is having problems with anxiety or depression or feeling hopelessness or alcoholism. I know you're not coming at this from a preachy standpoint, right? but what would you say to that person who says, I don't know what to do? Well, uh, seek help, whether you go and uh, talk to people, whether it's friends, whether uh Somebody asked me, uh, you never went to a therapist? And I said, well, no, but I had uh, lots of close friends that I talked to. I talked to my wife endlessly about these things when we got together. And I, I tend to read a lot when, I, when things happen to me. Uh, there, there was a book I read that had a very powerful effect called uh, My Age of Anxiety by Scott Stossel, who I have since met and talked with. And, and his, his book is about... He, He's the editor of Atlantic Magazine, and he's had debilitating panic attacks his whole life. And his therapist told him, you're a writer, write about this. Hmm. And when I met him, I told him, I said, listen, your book was the key that opened up the door to me having a life free of panic attacks. Uh, his, his, he didn't, his book didn't go into this thing about me talking about it being a uh, an opportunity and not a problem and learning to train myself and, uh, and looking at it like addiction. But there was a great deal of information that opened up doors in my head. So I suggest people read, talk to people, and be patient with yourself. When I talk about uh, me having this terrible panic attack. And I was describing earlier to you that I uh, passed out and they thought I was uh, having a heart attack. They put me in an ambulance. The EMT, uh, the woman in the EMT calls up the hospital to say, we're bringing in a patient for cardiac arrest. And in response, I started projectile vomiting, which I'd never done in my life. And I, I it, my entire body went out of control, I, and I there was nothing I, I couldn't do anything about it. And so I so I know that there are other people feeling this way, like there's nothing you can do about it. And what I'm saying is there is something you can do about it. And the most important thing is to be patient with yourself. When I did this little process of this is not a problem, it's an opportunity. It was a day-by-day process, moving an inch at a time. And from that terrible panic attack I'm describing to going in and getting the eye operation with no anxiety, almost a year and a half had passed. 
but it's gone. There was no medication involved. There was no big expense. <laughs> I just read and had to be patient with myself and recognize that I didn't have all the answers, but if I just kept moving forward a step at a time, I'd start seeing things and understanding things. So patience is incredibly important and opening up, not being afraid to talk to people, to read to people, open up. And when you do, you will find you're in a large group. Yeah. Panic attacks are directly connected to your strongest instinct, your sense of survival. It's your fight or flight button getting pressed. It's our sense of survival is our strongest instinct. Your fight or flight button in your brain is directly connected to your sense of survival. It's very easy to go awry and start getting pressed uncontrollably in ways you don't understand and that don't make sense. But you are not alone in feeling this way. And this was a, a big impetus with me when I wrote this book to get it out. Because I just, you know, when you have an experience like this and you find a way out, I just had this feeling, maybe this will help somebody. And if it helps one person, great. I know when I told, told Scott Stossel that I didn't have panic attacks anymore and how much his book had helped me. He said, I can't tell you how great that makes me feel. He said, my therapist told me to write this. I wrote it. I'm still having panic attacks. It didn't help me. I can't tell you how glad I am that it helped you. You want to pass this stuff on. Anything you can do that might help somebody. Yeah. Anything. One of the guests on this show was Jeff Calder uh -huh. of the Swimming Pool Cues. Yes. And he had recommended that we speak. And then again, when we finished taping the interview, he said, you really, you got to talk to Glenn. Got to talk to Glenn. And <laughs> you two are creative partners on, right. on some things. I'm hoping you can tell us about the great Jeff Calder. Well, Jeff is, uh, I first met Jeff before he was really a, a musician. He was a writer. Uh, in, he lived d down in Florida. And he first came up, he was in Atlanta, and I met him. He was doing a story on the Grease Band, and he came and I interviewed me about that, interviewed me about what I was doing. And then he started uh, booking some shows for the band in Florida. And we would stay with him when we played, and we just became instant, close friends. You know, this connection that you feel with somebody that's like your brothers or you've known each other all your life. We just had that sort of thing. And so at one point, he told me he'd started writing songs. And, and I said, well, come down and sing a song. We worked up one of the songs, and he came down and sang it with us, uh, playing in Florida. And then he told me he wanted to move to Atlanta and start a band. And I was giving guitar lessons to uh, a guy named Bob Elsie. And Bob was just, he, he was a young guy starting off playing, but just had a great intuitive, natural feel for music. You know, just something you can just tell right off when somebody has something like that. And we became really close friends. And I told Jeff, if you, uh, if you want to start a band, this guy is the perfect guitar player. So they hooked up and had this great chemistry. And then uh, Ann Boston was also a friend of mine, Bob's. We were all like in the same circle and, and Jeff got connected with her. So we we ended up doing lots of shows together. The first shows they the pool cues did, they didn't even have equipment. That we They'd borrow our equipment. They, they would open up shows for us. We'd open up shows for them. We'd jam with each other. We'd play with each other. Jeff was much more of a wild man back then. This was before he quit drinking. So there was lots of crazy-ass uh, experiences that we had together. <laughs> I, I, I didn't ever, although I've never had a drink, as I mentioned earlier, I kind of can always tell I was an alcoholic, and I've always had, I had, Jeff and I had a natural affinity and connection, oftentimes when he was drunk, and that is most wild. We just connected, just intuitively, you know what I mean? We just, there were, we had wild fun together. And uh, so this connection with the pool cues goes back a long time. And uh, 
that led to us writing lots of songs together, some of which the pool cues did. And we ended up with so many songs that we decided to start playing jobs occasionally on our own. And we made it, uh, we've made a couple albums together under the name The Supreme Court. Speaking of songs, I'm hoping you can tell us about your compositions. I was listening to a number of them today. Uh-huh. How would you describe to someone who is not familiar with your work, what are, what are the Glenn Phillips compositions like? Well, you know, I was talking about writing the book and it opening up doors and me seeing things. That's what music has always been for me. A way to go into your subconscious and open up doors oftentimes that you didn't even know were there. So people ask me to, to describe the music, and I understand why, because it doesn't really fit into any particular genre. Sure. My, my, my solo records, uh, the, the records I've made with Jeff are all songs that he's singing. We write, this, we, we write the songs together, but he's writing the lyrics. You know, there were a, a, one song maybe... Maybe a song that I there was one song I contributed lyrics to maybe another one or maybe I'd say yeah that sounds good but the lyrics were mostly Jeff but we'd write the, the music together when I write the Glenn Phillips songs I never think about what I'm doing when I'm writing songs it's an intuitive process I just start something starts coming out and I turn on the tape recorder and I just record it I don't think about it. Now, when I go back and listen, and for an album of 10 songs, I may write 100 songs or song ideas, but 10. But when I go back and listen, if it connects with me on a deeply emotional level, and I feel like it's opening something up inside of me, those are the songs I work on. So at that point, I do spend a lot of time working on the songs, the arrangements, the instrumentation, how I'm going to record it how I want it to feel, how I want it to sound, but it's all an intuitive process because it's connected to something inside of me that feels true, that feels real. Um, and that's, that's, for me, that's the only guidepost I follow. Now, I'm not suggesting that anybody else should do this because I don't think it's necessarily the uh, easiest route to go commercially. <laughs> Because you're coming up with something that's not going to sound like anybody else. Right. And that's not often the most marketable music. There are, that's not to say that people who are very successful aren't often doing the same thing. Some people just come up with things in the same way, and it is very uh, commercial. But for me, the self-discovery aspect of music and where it's taken me as a person always seem more valuable than how many records I might sell or how popular I might become. This, this does not mean that I don't appreciate it when somebody likes my music or it does well. It means the world to me. I love it. But for it to mean something to me personally, it has to feel like it's something, it's, some, it's a piece of truth given, given a form. The same way when you're writing something, you know when it's right, when it feels like it's the truth. <laughs> Something that's coming up is an event that's going to be at the Red Light Cafe. Right. And the listeners are invited. Yes. To tell me a little bit about this event. Well, it's the 20th anniversary of the day after Thanksgiving show. We've been doing these 20 years in a row. And uh, the, I've loved doing them there. The people who run the red light are incredible. And they have been the entire 20 years, going back 20 years. When I, I, when I first did the first year there, I wanted to play someplace on Thanksgiving. But I had made the decision, this was back in the 90s, that I was not going to play in any clubs with smoking anymore. It was just, I just wasn't going to do it. And I could not find any club in Atlanta that would let me come in and do a no-smoking show. And I also wanted to do an early show. So this predated 
the no smoking club thing that is now well known and the early club thing. It, back then, shows would typically start, say, even if they said they'd start at nine, they might not start, they wouldn't start till 9.30, maybe even 10. If you wanted to hear the headlining band, it may be midnight by the time they wanted. Everything was very late and clubs were smoke filled. So I just contacted every club in town. We had a following and I just said, just let me come down and do this. Let me come down and play one show, one night, and we'll do an early show and do it no smoking and just see what happens. And the red light was the only place that would do it. So I went down there and did it. And we, we played like we always play twice when we play there. And people are welcome to stay for both shows when we play. We'll play an early show and then we'll play a second one after that. But they were shocked that the first show was the one that was packed. <laughs> and they were shocked that this place was packed and nobody could smoke. And so then they started doing no smoking shows and early shows. And then other clubs started hearing about them doing it and they started doing it. So for me, this was a, this was, uh, you know, we're talking about writing the book and it might help somebody. Even if it's a small step in the right direction, sometimes that leads to bigger things. The grease band going down to Piedmont Park and plugging into the outlet led to these gigantic shows at Piedmont Park. This going down and getting this one club to do this. I'm not saying that we're responsible for all clubs going no smoking, but it started opening up doors. And then all of those things together, other people feeling the same way, somebody else at another club doing it, it starts a chain reaction. So I feel incredibly... Uh, lucky and honored to have been a, a part of that chain reaction and the red light is the whole reason why that happened so we've been doing this for 20 years now mayor and that's why those shows mean so much to me and so this is going to be november the day after thanksgiving so this I think, is i think thanksgiving is the 25th the 28th i want oh. to say yes Thursday, November 28th. Is okay, so the 29th, November 29th, Friday, November 29th is when the show is. And it'll be at what time? Eight. We play at eight, and then we'll play again like at 9.30, and, and people are welcome to stay it, it, for both things. And the Red Light Cafe is such right. a great place. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. How cool. I love playing down there. What is the best thing about being Glenn Phillips? Uh, being married to my wife, Katie Oler. We've been together 34 years. And uh, Katie, it, had it not been for Katie, I feel fairly certain I'd still be having panic attacks. I don't think that book would be out. <laughs> I don't, there's a lot of great things that have happened in my life because of the positive influence that she's had. And she was, well, for a number of reasons with the book, she was very helpful on a number of levels. And she, she even uh, acted as an editor going through and giving me completely uh, honest, we have a relationship where we talk to each other about anything. So not just the book, but even in my life. If she sees me going off and in the wrong direction, she'll just say it. If we have that kind of back and forth. We have each other's backs. We trust each other. We get along incredibly well. Uh, I feel incredibly lucky to have her in my life. So I would say that's, without a doubt, the best part. We've talked about so many different things. Music, psychological issues. Right. Atlanta, the Hampton Grease Band, Frank right. Zappa. Really, with this, with this question, you can go anywhere you like. What would you say to anyone who's tuned in? Don't ever allow yourself to feel alone. Always reach out, whether it's musically, whether it's friends, whether it's family, whether it's your partner, your spouse, boyfriend, girlfriend, whatever. Never let yourself feel alone. My mom was very shattered by my dad's suicide. And uh, when I went to visit her, when she was on her deathbed, it, which was at, at her home, she had, a, uh, she had on her desk 
the last Valentine's Day card my dad gave her. And on it, she had written, this was my last Valentine. And that was, you know, decades after he killed himself. And my mom never really liked the fact that I was open and talked to people about my dad's suicide uh, or about issues, you know, in the family and that sort of thing. And I asked her, why is it that that bothered you so much? And she said, because I was ashamed. She felt responsible for this. And what I learned about having panic attacks is that they're driven by guilt. And there's things that happen to all of us when, we, when we're younger. We come to conclusions when we're younger that are based on very limited information. As children, we always feel like we're responsible for everything that's going on around us. I, I felt responsible for my parents' alcoholism. I somehow felt responsible for my dad's suicide, not being able to save him. And this led to anxiety in my life, panic attacks. This led to things. It was through talking to people, connecting with people, that I began to realize the conclusions you come to as a child affect and direct your behavior in ways you're not even aware of as an adult. And you have to go back and re-examine those conclusions as an adult. It's Imagine, in my case, this is what I ended up thinking about. Imagine, uh, and this, this actually happened to me, where a young kid came to me in our neighborhood, who was a friend of ours, and she was going, her parents were fighting, drinking, and she was saying, I have, to, I have to stop this. I have to help them. It was like a seven-year-old kid. Mm. And I had to explain to her, this is not because of you. They're not, their behavior isn't driven by their children. It's driven by their childhood. You are not responsible for this. You don't have the power to change it. When I told her that, I started realizing the same thing about myself. In talking to people... And connecting people, what you will find is these things that you feel isolate you and that are exclusive to you or not. These feelings of depression, anxiety, alienation are very common among all of us. And when you start talking to people about them and connecting with them, you're not just helping them, you're helping yourself. So just don't keep it in. Hmm. Who is Glenn Phillips? Well, that's sort of that's sort of something you just uh, it's a discovery process. It changes as time. You know, um, when I first started playing guitar, I remember I picked up my brother's guitar and I hit the strings and I felt them vibrate about against my body. I was 16 and I had this thought, this is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. And it is what I've done for the rest of my life. But as I've gotten older. I've looked back and I've realized that what drew me to, to that so powerfully was more than I was aware of. I look back now and I realize it was a hiding place. When you're growing up and you, uh, when I was a kid, my parents used to fight. There was drinking, fighting going on in the house. I pull the covers over my head. You're always looking for a hiding place. When you have anxiety, when I used to walk into the doctor's office, it was like I'd get blinders on. I didn't want to see things. I didn't want to. I just wanted to cut off. I've learned to open things up and open my eyes up and see more. And as I've done that, I look back even at myself. In this moment, when I hit the guitar, I realized that was about more than just the guitar. That was because I. It was a hiding place. It was something to lose myself in. So when you ask me who Glenn Phillips is. When I look back at the earlier version of Glenn Phillips, if you had asked me these questions when I first picked up that guitar and when I was first playing, I had no idea really why I was doing it or what I was doing. I can see it now from some perspective. So I'm just, I'm a guy going through life trying to connect the dots and figure things out just like everybody else. That's, that's who I am. Well, Glenn Phillips, 
Thank you very much for having me in your home. Oh, well, thank you for, I've really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you for doing this. And for, and for all your interviews, I, uh, you know, when you contacted me, I started going back and looking through this vast body of work you've done of these interviews. And they are literally uh, a living example of exactly what I'm talking about, where you're talking and connecting with people. You're, you're taking these things and putting them online. You're spreading connection. And you're spreading the concept of connection. And your interviews are incredibly insightful. And I really enjoy going back and seeing them that you've done with a variety of people. People I knew, people I didn't know, people I wasn't aware of and learned something from listening to them. So thank you for doing this. Not just with me, but I know it's I know it's a vast undertaking, but mm-hmm. it, it, it affects more people than you're probably aware of. Thank you for saying that. I really appreciate it. All right. All right. Until next time. Bop, bop, dealy, bop, bop, ba-doo, bop, zee, bock, a doodly, not bock, suki, chacha, kooka, baza, looky, baza, necka, pokey, get a go, da-dum, bock, doodly, zan, ba-dum, a-dacky, bata, yeah, yeah, zika, baka, puka, long, gong, doodly, dee, boo, goodbye.